Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. So today, I'm talking to David Shah. And I'm very much looking forward to this. I think David's going to be a bit of a live wire. Too hot to handle. I said to him, are we going to have scripts? And are we going to do all sorts of groovy stuff to get ourselves ready? He said, no, no, let's just do it. That's what authenticity is all about. Welcome, David Shah. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad to be here. And uh, virtually. <laughs> and, virtually and here, here virtually. <laughs> With the British accent, I feel I feel uh, really fancy when you pronounce my uh, my last name. That's Shaw. really good. It has a royal ring to it when you pronounce it. <laughs> That's right. Well, what can I say? You are, you are a royalty amongst us today, David. Nice. <laughs> um, and I'm guessing from your accent, um, you're not from our neck of the woods. So tell us where you're from today. Definitely not. I'm from I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, <laughs> Uh, b- biggest little city in, uh, in, in America, maybe. <laughs> well, every American city seems to have a phrase to distinguish it right, from it. It's right, right. It's very interesting. So um, we're, we're looking at a beautiful heat wave outside of my window here. Um, and last time I talked to someone in the States, it was snowing. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, right, right here, it's, it's kind of cool. It's, uh, you know, 60s. It's going to get up to the 70s today. This is my type of weather. In Baltimore, we typically skip um, fall and spring and just do winter and summer. Uh, so we just have this little window that I really enjoy where it's not killing you with the cold or the heat. My assistant always tells me off for spending time talking about the weather, but whenever we go to the States, my wife is obsessed by HGTV and I like the weather channel. Just, just saying. So David, um, how, would you descri- how would you describe what it is you do? Um, so I help organizations prevent burnout. Um, and I do that through um, speaking from the stage through um, consulting, um, figuring out what levers need to be pulled uh, with their culture. Um, you know, we have a whole lot of written and unwritten sort of policies and rules and norms within our organizations uh, that impact uh, so much of our employees' experience, which then trickles down to everything else. So uh, I go in and consult, I speak from the stage, I do trainings. Um, And then when I'm not doing that, you know, for money, I'm going out and trying to spread the word any way I can, because uh, this is is the gospel to me. Uh, Work should not be about um, just collecting a paycheck. 
Brilliant. Um, and, you know, this is great because we do similar work and I'm excited to sort of share ideas and such like. So, so talk to me. And, and I love the way you started this because a lot of people, when they talk about burnout, talk about how do we stiffen the employees rather than figuring out yeah. who the true culprits are. But how, how, did you, how did you get into this line of work? What's your backstory? Yeah, so um, I have a very interesting path. So I started off uh, my first um, real brick and mortar business uh, was a ice cream franchise, a small ice cream shop in Baltimore City. Yeah. And Baltimore City, I don't know if you guys have the wire out there. Yes, I've seen this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I barely. I, I've got sub, I've got subtitles Baltimore. on for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it's a it's a bit of a um, uh, it's a pretty accurate portrayal of certain parts of Baltimore. Um, as much as uh, Baltimore would love for you to think that it's not. Um, it's not all of Baltimore, and certainly I grew up in the suburbs, which is a very different life. Um, but when I opened up this ice cream shop in Baltimore City, all of my employees came from neighborhoods where they were literally filming The Wire, right? And so uh, my employees were made up of primarily underprivileged uh, kids, teenagers, young adults um, from the inner city of Baltimore. Yeah. And these kids um, really faced so many different uh, types of obstacles in their lives, so many different types of challenges. And I noticed one day that despite that, they were super engaged in their work. And my turnover was almost non-existent. There wasn't employee theft. There weren't all the issues that these other restaurateurs were yeah. having. And mind you, I was paying minimum wage. These were minimum wage workers from the yeah. inner city and they were sticking around and engaged in their job and finding something deeper in their yes. work. Yes. So that, that led me to ask questions like, why? What's different about these kids? What's different about this environment? Um, and like, like you said in the very beginning, you know, I, I very quickly learned that um, engagement and burnout, it's not, it's not completely about an individual's resiliency because that's how you put up with what life throws at you. But as organizations, we often put up so many boundaries and barriers that only make it harder. And then we tell the employees, we teach the employees how to deal with it instead that, of lowering those barriers. That, 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 that is, I mean, I really can't agree enough with you because it's almost like there's an organizational load. And it's like, you know, you get your boulder every morning as you arrive through the front door of the organization. Right. And what they do is every day the builder gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And what they do is they teach you to go and pump iron in the evenings rather than saying, well, yeah. let's make the load of it smaller or chop the rocks up. And, right, and it is, right. you know, this idea where you sit and suffer in silence through utter tedium, sitting in people's meetings and, you know, doing reports that don't matter and reporting on KPIs that no one looks at. It's just, right. it's just madness, isn't it? I mean, how did we get here? Right. Yeah. It, I mean, I think, I think this is the way it used to be, right? Everybody had played their little role on the assembly line and never saw the big picture. And I think that we are right now in this transition period where work is transforming, but not as quickly as we are. Right. You know, we now are looking for more out of our work. We want to find meaning in our work. Right. And that's not a brand new concept. I mean, we were talking about this, um, that the idea of work as a calling originated through the church so many centuries ago, right? And, and, and even translated beyond just the church. It became work can be a calling. Um, we can fulfill our mission. I know 
this sounds like the beginning of a joke, but I actually did this where I scheduled a week off of my calendar and I sat down with a priest, a rabbi, a minister, and an imam all separately. I couldn't get them in a room together. That would have been really interesting. And, uh, and I asked them, what's the meaning of life to an individual? Yeah. And what I was getting at was how does that really intertwine with what we do in our daily work? Because we spend over half of our waking hours at work, as we love yeah. to say, right? And so it can't be if there is a greater meaning to all of this. And, and that you don't need to comment that from a religious perspective, but these religious leaders would certainly have a perspective on that, right? Mm. But if there is a deeper meaning to all of this, then we can't just press pause. It can't be good to go into work and press pause on our meaning and, and the reason for all of this and, and what we want out of this life mm -hmm. um, for eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours a day, and then resume it, it the rest of the day. It just, it makes no sense. So instead, we should be finding our meaning at work. I think we're evolving to, to want and to need that. Yes. Um, and work is not evolving as quickly to keep up with us. I mean, how, we have a unique opportunity at the moment with the, you know, the pandemic situation that's around us, uh, or uh, on the way out of it anyway, to really think differently about work now, don't we? You know, what, what work is for almost. I mean, certainly in our country, there's been a huge amount of social engineering and the government are almost subsidizing the, the capitalist workforce as capitalism has failed, as, as it's right. failing around. It's something similar in the States, I'm guessing. And there seems to be a unique opportunity to, to make things different. I mean, if you could change some things, what, what, where would you start? Well, I think, I think a lot of people are seeing what you can do working from home. Yeah. And I don't think working from home is in either or. But I love to talk about this concept of vestigial structures you know, when you talk about biology, you talk about your coccyx bone, you know, that's our tailbone that we don't have a tail anymore. What's that still doing there? And a few years back, my wife went out for a run and slipped on the ice and busted her coccyx bone. Well, why, why is that even there to begin with? You know, you, you talk about wisdom teeth and all of the pain and surgery associated with that. The, the same thing happens in organizations where we hold on to these vestigial structures. We have all these things that are, um, it, it, we just do it because it's the way it was always done, yes. right? And so work from home is a great uh, example of that, right? Telework. Why have we always said no to telework? Why have so many managers forbidden it? Yes. Well, we originally forbade it because it made no sense. Conceptually, it couldn't work. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have the ability. We didn't have the infrastructure to telework. Then the infrastructure was built over time. And now we're saying no to it because we always said no to it. And that's yes. it. Um, so I think that that is a great place to start. And I think that a lot of organizations are seeing that right now. But for every organization, it's got to be, um, they, have to, they have to go through their policies, both written and not written. Um, and, and really evaluate what needs to change within their specific organization. And sometimes it's, and this is the challenge, isn't it? I mean, this, the vestig I like this idea of the vestigial st structures, makes a, hell of a, a lot of sense to me, really brings it home. Uh, and your point's right, isn't it? You know, teleworking is true. But one of the reasons it doesn't work is because of trust. So, yes. you know, the, the technology was there, the operations were there, uh, but no one had ever done it. 
no manager had really ever done it. I was talking to someone recently in, who's, who had been furloughed up here and they're telling me they'd finished their job by 10.30 in the morning because they spent the rest <laughs> of the day in meetings. And that's what work was all about, just going and doing meetings because managers didn't trust people to do their own jobs. And I think yeah. there's a sort of a failure of the leadership role to actually have the what's the i can't I, I can't think of the polite word of saying courage that's it that's the word right to, to actually do the proper leadership job isn't it funny how organizations that have more burnout have smaller and less imaginative leadership teams right it, it, is, it is interesting and i wonder how much of it is um leaders having in the back or let's call the managers having in the back of their mind this this deep-seated concern what if management is a vestigial structure what what if what if my role is sort of obsolete now and you even see people who are studying leadership now there's not just leadership theory there's followership theory and and the the whole dynamic that maybe it's not as much about the leader as we thought. Um, I like to think that the leader's role is to be there and to support and very opposite what we think of a leader as being the one ahead of the charge. The leader should almost disappear in the background, almost. They should be there for support. But we we might argue that leaders, and to avoid burnout in particular, leaders need to morph. They need to be one thing in one place. They need to, you need a different sort of leadership in a small, dynamic um, ice cream parlor and right. to you know, being a, the a middle leader in a vast corporation in Silicon Valley. They're, they're, they're different demands. Yeah. The, the, issue, the issue is that what seems to happen is, as leaders or managers go up the tree is they become, they become restricted. They become more likely to conform. It's almost as if they've got there and now we're going to hang on to it. Right, right, right. And that's, that's kind of how you get there, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. when you look at, you know, the, the ASA model, right? Attraction, selection, attrition, right? It's this model that we use to describe when people are coming into an organization, that you are going to attract people to your organization that, are, that fit the current culture, the current um, uh, sort of dynamic of, of your organization. Yeah. And then you're going to select people that are familiar to you and, and really seem to fit. And yeah. then the ones who are a bad fit are going to leave on their own or be fired, right? The I think mavericks. The <laughs> right, exactly. I think the same thing happens with uh, promotion so that you end up getting that sort of old boys club at the top where yeah. everybody uh, really starts conforming more and more as you climb the ladder because it's more and more selective um, oh. and, and fewer people make it up there. So what are you saying in a funny sort of way, we need to rethink leadership. We need to rethink structures in a way to actually recreate the employee workplace. So people are finding more meaning. And I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's something important here because there are a lot of people in the world, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who take three jobs because they don't have any meaning. They're just trying to put bread on the mm-hmm. table. Aren't they? And you know, it's hard to find meaning in that. And so a lot of people do work because the meaning is what they do get outside of the working structure. And, you know, people get caught in this rut, don't they? And there's a form of burnout of life, isn't there, that comes from this. And it's a sort, it's a sort of paucity of development that people have, the paucity of education, which is, a, which is a challenge, isn't it? And it's hard to get out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think um, that it's a privilege to have meaningful work, 
I think that that when we talk about finding meaning at work, we're really sort of um, uh, it it is sort of a privileged mentality, and and it's sort of the evolution of work where we can demand this now within certain circles and with within certain um, you know socioeconomic classes, um, we can demand it more than others. However. Um, I really think that what I saw just in my ice cream shop, when you're talking about people on the other end of the spectrum, you know, people making minimum wage, um, facing some, some tremendous difficulties, um, they were able to find meaning in their work because um, I was willing and able and, and interested, and not just selflessly, but also selfishly because it, it pays off for everyone, but to guide them and help them find meaning in their work and empower them and give them that autonomy that they need and, and to broaden the idea of what is this work that we're doing. Yeah. Show me a business that doesn't have some sort of impact on society and I'll show you a bankrupt business, right? So every business has some sort of impact. Um, so the question is, are your values aligned with the businesses? Does the business even recognize its value? What are, yeah. what are its core values? It's not something to just go on a wall. That, that defines the business and should match your own core values. And, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because I've worked on a, um, a lot of PE-funded, private equity-funded businesses where, and one of, the, one of the ones I did some work with was one of, is one of the most successful organizations I've ever worked for, with or for as a consultant. And everything we would espouse was non-existent there was no diversity there was no empowerment there was no there was nothing there was just a dog eat dog huge salaries huge work expectations and then one day there was a massive payout and then the organization was sold <laughs> and, and it is interesting that's why i think actually your point about values is right because the people who had that value set liked and was stimulated by that that culture i mean there was no need for performance management because it was an utter and ruthless meritocracy and if you weren't performing you were gone and and that was fine for some people they need that level of structure don't they and i think the confusion here is that we mix um again a small family business in baltimore with you know a pangalactic organization in hong kong and we don't take account of like you're saying the the um not just the aspirations of the work workforce, but the aspirations of the shareholders. And I think that's the bit that's changing as this new culture, this new group of people, people who are young, get to the top of organizations. We're going to see, you know, a greener world, a more diverse world, because they, they take it for granted, don't they? And I think, I mean, thank goodness for that. And maybe that's what's going to change leadership for us. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the matching is, is absolutely essential. And that there... There is a match for everyone. You know, everybody, where your values lie, do you want um, more work-life balance and to take it easy and to just, you know, there, there are jobs for that, you know? Yeah. Um, but if you want to be up, you know, till the middle of the night, every night and be working and, and, you're, and you love being competitive and things yeah. like that, there are organizations for that too. You just have to find yeah. the right match. So what happened after the ice cream factory? Because that's, that's only the beginning of the story, isn't it? Yeah, so after the ice cream uh, business, I started um, speaking about their experiences, the, the, my crew members' experiences, you know. Um, and it's very intriguing to hear about a guy who lost two brothers to violent incidences in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and, and still 
um, showed up to his job at the ice cream shop. Um, but it led me to asking all these questions. What was different about this crew of people? What was different about what we did? And I found myself advising other business owners, executives, et cetera, on um, how they could replicate this and asking myself, well, is that true? How do, you, how do I know that because it worked for me, it could work for somebody else? You know, yeah. we, we live in a time right now where, um, evidence-based, um, uh, you know, um, uh, argument is kind of, is kind of uh, going by the wayside. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's a conspiracy, everything. And, and it doesn't matter which side of the aisle or whatever, you know, you, you sit on, um, the truth is being redefined right now. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to be part of that. Somebody who was just saying this one time, this worked for me and therefore it should work for you. So um, I started Googling a lot and could have gotten a degree in Google of employee engagement. Um, and then, and then I started drinking the Kool-Aid and just got deeper and deeper and, and um, went out and received my master's in IO psychology, which is industrial organizational psychology, which is probably uh, the most pretentious title for, for a, uh, um, uh, for, for a um, uh, sector of, of work that you could ever come up with. Uh, um, but, but really all it is is the, the science of work, right? I always say if your HR director and a psychiatrist had a baby, I would be that baby. So okay. <laughs> uh, that's, that's IO psychology. And, uh, and, and then, um, and then I suspect all my psychiatrist jokes now because uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> as psychologists, then, we always have a sneery attitude to psychiatrists, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> always. And, and so I uh, continued on and now am uh, completing my dissertation in uh, business psychology, specifically on burnout and building meaningful work. Mm -hmm. um, and also how coworker support um, you know, moderates that relationship. Yeah. So interesting stuff. And so this is, this, is, this is a very glib thing I'm going to ask you now, but again, if an organization wants to, to know it has burnout, what should it be looking for? What, what, what are the early signs that an organization should be concerned about? Yeah, I think the signs that people typically see and, and um, uh, you know, this, this is when they're already seeing the fire yes. um, is turnover. You know, <laughs> high turnover rates, they see that and they're like, we've got a burnout problem. What's interesting to me is, especially in this new economy that we're going to be unfortunately likely entering, uh, which is more of a recession-based economy. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong about that. But, but if that is our new reality, we're going to see something a lot more dangerous than turnover. And that's the lack of turnover of burned out employees. Yes, that's right. Um, because when, when employees burn out, um, getting out is sort of, is sort of the way to, to cure themselves and the organization of that burnout in a very quick and dirty way. Yeah. Um, but what burnout typically looks like is you, you see people begin uh, to become much more cynical uh, in nature. Yeah. You, see, you see people to become literally exhausted. Emotional exhaustion is, is one of the key or the key piece of burnout. You start seeing employees um, exhibit um, complete exhaustion. They can't handle it anymore um, at work and beyond. 
Um, and this can, this can uh, then become uh, cynicism. Um, they can start sort of churning their wheels and not be as productive as they used to be. And even when they are productive, not view themselves as productive. Um, they just become completely demoralized. And finally, burnout can actually translate into physical ailment. Yes. Um, you know, as, as uh, people start, we've seen things like headaches, um, nausea, like all sorts of these physical ailments associated with just being completely stressed yes. um, and experiencing burnout. And so if an organization, and I know you have a million and one things that you can recommend, but if an organization needs to do one thing to, so let's say it's spotted the signs out there, what's, what's the first thing I should really think about doing? Um, I think the, maybe the first thing would be to start showing support. Now, support is like my, my thing. That's, what, that's specifically what I'm researching. So uh, this is certainly a case of, um, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. So, so I, think, I think support is, is, a, is a beautiful one. But you said one thing, but um, I subscribe to the demand control support model. Uh, which argues that burnout comes when demand increases, control decreases, the sense of control decreases, yeah. Yeah. Um, and support decreases, yeah. right? So suddenly we're demanding so much from your job. And people who are sitting at home right now can really understand this across the globe because now their demand has increased because either they're out of a job and the demand of trying to find a job and, and, and put food on their table, et cetera, is out of control or they're working from home for the first time, their customers and how they interact with them has completely changed. Everything about their job has changed that's very emotionally demanding and you know, all, all around demanding. The control piece, uh, none of us have any sense of control. I know, listen to any politician, some more than others, maybe in my country more than others, but, but um, people will get up there, politicians will get up there and say, two opposite facts in the same talk. And, and, um, and so the sense of control, we have no idea what's happening. I'm still be, being booked for engagements for October, November with live in-person conferences. I'm like, are these gonna happen? Are they not? So we're contingency planning and all that, but, but the sense of, we, have, we, we lack a sense of control in our personal lives and whether we're gonna make it, whether our business is gonna make it, Etc. And support is something when, when you're locked away in your house, you don't have the natural support that you used to. Uh, so I would say out of those three, it's really important to, to um, decrease demand. And that goes back to what we're saying, like decrease the vestigial structures. Go back, look at your, at your playbook, look at, look at all of the formalization, all the, rule, all the rules and policies, both written and unwritten that you have, and start scaling that back and saying, why does this exist? Why does this exist? And get rid of the ones that don't make sense anymore. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then control, give people more autonomy. Um, and, then, and then because you said pick only one, although secretly I just picked three, but <laughs> support is so essential to, to uh, give your employees the support that they need. Be a servant leader. Um, figure out what you can do to lighten their burden in any way that you can. Um, that, that, is, that is essential to be both emotional and, and to lighten their burden. And, and that's really important given that most managers are the source of most of the demand and lack of control issues. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think people don't understand that, do they? That that's you know, it's the organization that needs to step up their game here. Um David, I could listen to you all day, A, because I'm agreeing with just about everything you're saying, and I, I don't want this to turn into a chorus of, of loveliness. Um, how do people get hold of you, see more of what you've done, and read more about you? How can, how can people engage with you? Yeah, they can go to my website, illuminatepmc.com. That's I-L-L-U-M-E-N-T-P-M-C, as in performance management consultants. Dot com. Uh, that's a really impersonal way. I really love when people connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, you can just search David Shar or do slash IN, LinkedIn.com slash IN slash David Shar. Um, that's one R S H A R. Um, and uh, I love having conversations on there. So um, you're not bothering me if you reach out and want some free advice. If you want to, if you want to talk, if you just want to vent. Um, that's the support piece that's so necessary. I'm, I'm there, I'm there for people at any level of the organization. Uh, professionally, I specifically, um, help at the organizational level, but if there are individuals who need help, um, I have this great network of people, um, that I, that I, uh, highly recommend when people need help, uh, navigating their organization from an employee's perspective as well. And I've just done that. I've just gone to your site, David Shaw, MPS, SHRM, all the, all the letters, David. All the letters. All the letters. <laughs> Someone's got a Scrabble set and thrown them around in a sort of a groove, <laughs> sort of way. And that's what I'm doing with David now on LinkedIn. And, um, and that's been brilliant. It's been fantastic to talk to you. And I think uh, your demand control support is a lovely way of actually getting to the heart of this issue and your point about it's not about resiliency it's about the organization vestigial systems superb i love the way you've thought about all that and you have a great way of just bringing that to life so thank you for spending time with us today thank you so much it's been a pleasure and an honor thank you you take care hi everybody i hope you found that episode useful and interesting feedback is always welcomed and if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on itunes or stitcher that would be amazing if you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.